This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a moment, you'll hear the second and final part of my conversation with Stephen Schwartzman, co-founder and CEO of the Blackstone Group. Steve Schwartzman is one of the most intriguing and influential figures in world finance today. He's just come out with a fascinating book called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. And today, he shares more anecdotes from his personal and professional life that hold lessons for us all. But first, when I look at the week ahead, here's what we can expect. Well, there'll be the usual weekly figures. On Wednesday and Thursday, we'll get reports on oil and gas inventories. They've been under pressure, especially oil. On October 1st, we'll get the manufacturing report on business. Manufacturing and business investment was a very real disappointment in the final second quarter report. We'll get an indication of whether the third quarter will be an improvement. But of course, everyone's going to be focused on impeachment. This is going to go on and on and on. My own feeling is the Democrats have made a mistake on this. They didn't have as much as they thought. And the whole impeachment hullabaloo is going to drown out issues that could help the Democrats, primarily health care. Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, counted out after the latest election, has been asked by the Israeli president to form a government. He's got six weeks to do it. Never count him out. And that's critical because you want stability in a critical country in the Middle East because Iran, Iran's being hurt, badly hurt by those financial sanctions which are being ratcheted up again. The head of Iran gave an interview on Fox where he talked about he's willing to negotiate, but first he said you need to establish trust. That's code for ease up on the sanctions and then maybe we'll talk to you. But the administration would make a mistake if they ease the sanctions. The only reason Iran's interested in talking at all is because those sanctions are working in a way they don't like. So watch what happens there. And in the UK, well, that new Supreme Court, only 10 years old, created by pressures from the European Union, they ruled against Prime Minister Boris Johnson's attempt to suspend Parliament for several weeks, what they call proroguing. The Brits come up with wonderful words for things like that, proroguing, suspending Parliament, putting it out of session for a few weeks. But one way or the other, Britain is going to leave the European Union. Nevertheless, those who want to stay in the EU, and they're very powerful in the legal profession and other professions in the business community, they're going to fight every inch of the way. But the will of the people ultimately cannot be ignored. Now, another story you're hearing rumblings about is why the Federal Reserve has to keep pumping cash into banks. Does that mean there's a crisis ahead? No. Those are simply results of bad government regulation, which is forcing banks to hold, especially the big ones, more cash than they really need for security purposes. This is a result of bad government policy making, bad government rulemaking, but nonetheless, it sort of stirs people's feelings that maybe there's a crisis there. There isn't, it's just government incompetence. You're about to hear Steve talk about his first day of work at Blackstone when he met Sam Zell, now a legendary billionaire businessman who had great success in real estate. But this first meeting, you're not going to believe it, how the two of them met. 
the first day, actually, we were open for business uh, in uh, 1985. And um, we had, I was the only person in the office at that point. My partner uh, was um, out someplace and um, um, he was about to hire a secretary. I didn't have a secretary for two years because I didn't think we could afford one. So there was a knock on the door and, and I opened the door and uh, there was a guy there um, wearing, uh, you know, leather pants and a, a, a black leather jacket. Uh, and um, uh, I thought he was a delivery guy uh, because, you know, we were just getting set up. And um, so, so I said, how, how can I help you? He said, I'm looking for Steve Schwarzman. And I, I said, well, that's, that's me. Uh, and um, he said, well... I said, what, what can I do for you? And he said, well, my name is Sam Zell, and I'm Leah Zell's brother. So we had hired Lehman, uh, Leah at, we'd hired Leah at Lehman, uh, and it was an odd uh, hiring. I, I wanted to do it. Uh, she had no qualifications uh, to be hired, other than the fact she was super smart and had been at Harvard College, and I think she was summa, uh, and um, uh, didn't know anything about finance, uh, but but I thought because she was so smart, she'd figure it out. So we hired her, and this this was her brother who I'd never heard of. So I, I said, "Geez, I thought you were like a delivery guy." I said, "Why are you dressed like this?" He said, "Well, you know, I was I was driving my motorcycle." I, I said, "Well, wh wh where's your motorcycle?" He said, well, I left it on Park Avenue, chained to a fire hydrant. Uh, and I said, really, that's interesting. Uh, and I'm sort of wondering, this is my first day at work at Blackstone, and this is like the first person uh, I've met. I said, well, wh what can I really do for you? He said, well, he said, I, I own some real estate, and I was thinking about buying uh, uh, companies, but, but I really don't know anything about companies. Uh, and uh, Leah said, you are super smart and you're the person I should talk to. So uh, I stopped by to talk. So, so at that point, we, we didn't have furniture. And we had a rug that was rolled up. It wasn't put down yet. In our little lobby, we had a total of 3,000 square feet. And, and so I said, I said, well, Sam, I, I can't even offer you a chair. I said, if you'd like to, you know, like sit... Uh, on this rolled-up rug leaning against uh, the wall, we could do that. And he said, well, that's no problem. I'm dressed for it. Uh, and um, so, so we spent about two and a half hours, uh, and that was the first time uh, that I met Sam. As it works out, you know, Sam was one of the largest owners of real estate and ultimately uh, uh, owned more office buildings than anyone in the world. Uh, and we, we did some other things with him. So um, you, you never know when you meet someone where it's going to go. You're talking about meeting people. At the time, it's proposed to you just before this nuclear winter to uh, get some equity capital in, to have permanent capital instead of every few years you got to put out the cup again and go through the rigmarole. You had three conditions, one of them being, if we do this, I need to remain 100% in control. They come up with a trading unit that uh, meets these uh, criteria. You want to raise $4 billion. 
and suddenly you get this offer of $3 billion from two seemingly unemployed people from China. <laughs> Walk us through that. <laughs> well, that was pretty unusual. I, I, I thought the, the, the world was getting pretty um, overheated uh, in uh, 2006. And, uh, That's a result of your Monday morning meetings. You well, started to see things you well, didn't you like. Well, you could definitely see they were really overheated. And uh, I was approached by uh, a fellow named Michael Klein, who was then at uh, Citibank, uh, to, to go public, uh, which um, really surprised me because at that point there were no private equity firms that, uh, that, that had gone public. And, you know, he sort of sketched out what he thought the valuations would be. And, and uh, I, I, I liked the idea because I wanted to have permanent capital and a lot of it, uh, to basically deal with the risks I thought were going to happen. I, I also uh, thought uh, that it would be a great branding moment for the firm and, and that we'd become much better known, um, which um, would, would make it uh, easier for people to sell us things, easier for us to buy, uh, uh, because people would know us and uh, in effect, implicitly trust us. Uh, and uh, I also felt, uh, besides the personal benefits for my partner and myself and the other people who worked at the firm financially, uh, that something unusual would happen. I called it an X factor. Uh, I didn't know what that was going to be, uh, but, but I thought something would happen. And as it worked out, uh, we actually were approached by three countries uh, who wanted a strategic relationship with us. Uh, and uh, I, I picked China uh, because it was um, by far the largest, uh, rapidly growing, um, and I thought was destined to be probably the largest economy in the world with the largest number of people. And, and um, uh, it was totally surprising that they reached out to us uh, I hadn't been to China since 1990. This was 2007, uh, and I had uh, recently uh, hired uh, a, a new partner named Anthony Leung, uh, who had been the financial secretary, which is like the treasury secretary of Hong Kong. And, and had in been... Hong Kong, by the way, in those days, the financial secretary was much more powerful than a treasury secretary here. Yes. That was a huge post. Right, and I didn't know that... Anthony had helped the Chinese uh, recapitalize their banking system, uh, and that's when they brought in uh, a number of the Americans uh, to be minority partners in their big banks. And, and so he had an unusually strong relationship, and they approached him, and he called me uh, at home. Uh, I was watching Law & Order, uh, plus reading an investment committee memo, and the phone rings, and it's Anthony. And he said, Steve, he said, I, I just had a meeting with two people here um, who've offered us $3 billion uh, for the Blackstone IPO. And, and I said, Anthony, we're, we're only selling $4 billion. They can't buy three quarters of it. Uh, and I said, who are these guys? And uh, uh, he said, well, um, you know, they're, they're people who... Uh, I know. I said, well, what do they do? He said, well, they don't have a job now. 
uh, I said, they must be really rich. Uh, and he said, no, no, they don't really have any money. I said, so why are you and I discussing this? I said, um, I said, what did they used to do? He said, well, one of them was the, uh, you know, deputy finance minister and the other one was the deputy governor, uh, at the bank of, uh, China, the central bank. So I said, well, why don't they have jobs? He said, well, they're being reassigned. I said, what are they being reassigned to? He said, nobody knows. But the rumor is China's about to start a sovereign wealth fund, and, and they're being cho- they were chosen to do it, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, so I said, so I should take these people seriously? He, he, said, he said, yes. I said, why? He said, they're, 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 they're speaking for China, Inc., I, I said, what's China, Inc.? He said, it's China, the country. This is the country of China that wants to invest in Blackstone. And I, I put my investment committee memo down, and I said, boy, this is astonishing because they hadn't done that with anyone outside of China. So I realized that this was a paradigm-shifting moment uh, for uh, China, and I, I went to work the next day and talked to Tony James, who was president of the firm. I said, Tony, what, what do you think we ought to do? He said, take the money. Uh, I said, well, that'll be $7 billion. He said, yeah, $7 billion, that's fine. We can, you know, sort of leave more in the firm. We can, you know, pay my partner Pete out, who was retiring, uh, uh, more and give the other partners more. And he said, overall, you know, that'll be a great thing. And, and it all got done within two weeks. It was a stunning thing. So when China wants to get something done, they know how to do it. Coming to the crisis of 2008, one of the things you do in this book hits on something most people overlook about the crisis. I call it the mark-to-market accounting debacle. Yep. But you discuss how this accounting change which had been done away with in the Great Depression precisely because it was destroying capital in a down market. We're doing the same thing again. You were one of the few who recognized, got to stop that. Yeah, in fact, um, you know, when I started investment banking, I was assigned financial institutions just for no reason except somebody needed to cover it. So they gave that to me, among other things that I did. So it was pretty clear that if you have a leveraged uh, financial institution, which is all of them, um, uh, that, that um, you know, just to, to make the point pretty easily, if, 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 if you have a, you know, balance sheet of 100 uh, and $4 of equity, uh, that you have 100 going up and down based on markets. So in a normal year, um, uh, a market will go up or down uh, 10 to 15% top to bottom. So, so if, if, it, if it moves 10%, that means it moves 100 million. If you had 4%, you'd have uh, four. So, so, so you, you will be crushed and there will be no equity left on a mark-to-market basis. Even and, though the capital is permanent, these are long-term investments, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And when I saw them put this in, um, in just in time for the crisis, it, it, it was probably five years before the crisis. So it was pretty clear to me that 
that the system, even in a normal year, would, would go insolvent. But if you had a, you know, sort of instead of a 10 to 15 percent of things went down 30, then everything would, uh, from an accounting perspective, snap, e even if uh, people were, you know, if you made loans and they were still paying you, th those loans would be worth less uh, in, 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 because they couldn't be sold. Nobody would want them. So um, I, I, I wrote an article uh, saying um, that I thought the system was going to collapse uh, and we should do something about it, but I couldn't get anyone to publish it. Hmm. Because they thought I, I was um, unbalanced, uh, whereas it's just third grade math. And well, you go back, uh, not to dwell on this, we go back to the 1980s. If they had had mark to market, the largest banks would have been uh, yeah. out three times over. Absolutely. So they've now modified that to some and degree. And it's no coincidence when they modified that starting in March of 2009, the market turned. Yes, it did. One of the interesting things in that crisis was uh, the role played by your wife in helping save civilization. Well, you know, I, I think Hank Paulson was going to save civilization regardless of whatever my wife was doing, and, and, and so was uh, Ben and Tim Geithner. Uh, but, but what was happening in that uh, week after Lehman uh, went bankrupt uh, is that, that the system really started uh, shuddering. And my, my wife called me on... Cardiac uh, arrest. Uh, on, on, a, on a Wednesday of that week and, and, you know, sort of asked me how my day was. And I said, well, my, my, my day is a complete disaster. She said, why? I said, well, you know, we, we, we have, um, you know, sort of uh, treasuries uh, in negative yield. Um, we, we, we have money funds that used to be worth a dollar and people thought they were like bank accounts and they were below a dollar. Breaking the buck. Like breaking the buck. Uh, and I said there's a, there's a um, sort, of, sort of a run on the banks, um, but it's not conventionally like the Depression where depositors were taking their money out. It was borrowers who wanted to borrow every dime they could because they thought the banks were going to disappear and they just wanted to have the cash. So they didn't think their loan agreements, uh, their ability to have a bank line would make any difference. And she said, well, what are you doing about it? I said, well, I drew down all my bank lines today. That's what I'm doing about it. She said, well, well, what else are you doing to stop this? She said, well, I, I said, I can't stop this. I, I said, I'm just sitting at my desk. And, and she said, but you've got to do something. She said, why don't you call Hank? So I said, why would I call Hank? Who was the Treasury Secretary at yeah, the time. Hank Paulson. And I said, I, will, I don't want to call Hank. He knows about all this stuff. She said, well, what if he doesn't know when the system collapses and you could have told him? I said, that's not possible. He's smart. He's informed. I, I don't want to waste his time. And, and she just kept at it. And if you've ever been married, you realize just by saying no doesn't end the conversation. So I realized it's easier to call him. And she said, well, you better have some solutions. And then she hung up. And I'm going, oh, my God, what am I going to say? And, and you know, he's not going to take the call anyhow, but i got to be prepared. So I, I called and, and um, 
you know, just like I thought, you know, it's uh, Secretary Paulson's at a meeting. I was thinking, thank goodness, uh, you know, and, and then he called it an hour later, which was a complete shock uh, to me. And, you know, he said, what are you say, seeing? And, and, you know, I told him what I was seeing. I, I, I said, I, I don't think the financial system, I don't think the banks uh, will be able to open on Monday. I, I said, I think this is close to over. Uh, and um, he said, are you sure? Uh, I said, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I said, this panic is, is moving so fast uh, that, that you have to get in front of this now. Uh, and every day you wait, you're going to need more money to save the system. And uh, so we talked about that. And, um, uh, and you know, um, I said, you really got to announce something tomorrow. And it has to be really big. We talked about also um, uh, stopping um, the ability of uh, people to short sell uh, financial institutions uh, and um, uh, getting rid of credit default swaps, which he couldn't do, and stopping transfers of uh, accounts uh, because they were taking all the money out of the investment banking firms and putting it into J.P. Morgan said he didn't have the ability to stop that. And then finally, you know, I said, you're going to need um, like the biggest amount of money you can ever find uh, to, as, as show me money uh, to, to buy against the market. And you have to show the market that, that in effect you can crush it uh, and that they'll lose money by shorting. They'll lose money in all kinds of ways. And you have to establish confidence. And, and you know, th- that, that became the TARP. Uh, which which uh, did accomplish that function, and you know we've talked about this subsequently. And, and and Hank said he said obviously we were thinking about a lot of this stuff. I mean you 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 didn't completely um, invent uh, all of these things, but he, he said you know you were one of a small group of people that we talked to to get a feel, and it became pretty clear um, on that Wednesday. It's only a question of when we were going to go into. Uh, into gear. And he said, um, it, it was clear after Wednesday, we really had to, um, to do something very significant. And they, they did the, uh, uh, the shorting thing, uh, and, um, and they, and they did the huge capital, uh, which was the tarp. So I, you know, at least went home and had a nice dinner, uh, with my wife. I didn't have to, you know, like go back again. Uh, so it worked out well. <laughs> and talking about J.P. Morgan, and this gets to uh, your reaction to the post-crisis, was instead of encouraging bank lending again to get the economy moving, they went in the exact opposite direction, regulation, even J.P. Morgan, cut your revolving credit in half. And he said, if you didn't have cash in the bank, we'd have cut it off. Crazy. Well, you know, I think in a regulated economy, which regulated banking system where obviously, and people don't talk about this for some reason, that, that the f- failure was very much um, by the regulators. They only talk about the banks failing, but the only reason to have a regulatory structure is to stop uh, banks from failing. So since almost every one of them, not everyone, but almost everyone would have snapped, uh, uh, 
without government support in some way or another or access to the Fed window, um, that, that it's clear that the regulators um, failed uh, virtually completely. Uh, and um, so, so, so what happens when you failed is then you redouble your efforts to do something else, uh, which doesn't necessarily end up being helpful to the system either. Uh, and, and so that's one of the things that, um, you know, to some degree was necessary, but also ensured that we would have lower growth uh, over the next eight years than any economist would have expected. And when you do that, it's the smaller businesses that feel the brunt of it. It's everyone that feels the brunt of it. Uh, and the people who feel the brunt the most are the people who've been unemployed. Uh, and because when the economy recovers much slower, they can't get jobs. And, and, uh, and, and that creates all kinds of societal issues and pressures, some of which we're living with right now. It's been observed that uh, commerce and philanthropy, which are always portrayed as polar opposites, are really two sides of the same coin, meeting the needs and wants of others, perhaps in very different ways. You've done a number of things in that area of uh, philanthropy, perhaps the most consequential long-term, perhaps even now, are the Schwartzman Scholars. Walk us through how you came up with the idea and then the challenges of cross-culture, getting things done with two different cultures. Hard enough in one culture. <laughs> yeah, particularly in the not-for-profit area. Uh, that um, this, this was really a, and, and continues to be a, a really exciting, a great adventure. And, um, you know, as, as a result of being uh, on this board, I never look at, at philanthropy as, you know, um, j just giving money to somebody because it's burning a hole in my pocket. Uh, I, I look at facilitating major new things. I love doing these new things. It's like starting a new Blackstone or expanding Blackstone, but it's doing it for the benefit uh, of society uh, as a whole. Uh, and, and so I was thinking, what, 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 what do I care about vis-a-vis -vis China? And what I cared about is I learned during the IPO that some people uh, in the U.S. and U.S. government really, really uh, didn't like the Chinese and, and that um, uh, the populism that was um, unleashed in the financial crisis as all these people lost their jobs and their wealth and, and housing uh, and terrible things, that those people were going to be angry at somebody. And, and, you know, usually in populism, the... Uh, government uh, gets those people angry at somebody who's doing better than they do. So in the, you know, the, the current decade uh, after the financial crisis, the objective apparently was to get, get those people angry at the business community or at wealthy people or somebody. Uh, and it never solves the problem. And, and so then what happens is you, you, you typically, historically, you, you find a foreign devil and you get angry at the foreigner. I figured that China was the number one candidate because they grew even through the crisis. They were the people getting rich. They were the people who were producing jobs. So, so it seemed, and, and they, were, they were doing it at the most rapid rate in uh, history. Uh, and, and so the, the, 
figured the developed world would be frustrated and, and would go after China. So, so I wanted to set something up uh, that would bridge what was actually happening in China with the perception of what was going on, uh, because sometimes it, it, it's accurate, sometimes it isn't. I also wanted a mechanism so, so that, you know, um, uh, th there was feedback for the Chinese themselves because sometimes they don't know exactly what the impact is of, of what they're doing. And this kind of two-way uh, feedback, uh, I thought, would be really useful to protect the global system uh, on an ongoing basis. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I came up with, you know, sort of using the Rhodes Scholarship Program as some type of example. And uh, so it's, it's sort of a best and brightest, highly creative entrepreneurial, um, you know, great communicators, um, um, you know, blazingly smart, uh, achievement-oriented people. And, and uh, I thought it would be interesting to have the composition of that group be 40% from the United States, 40% uh, from other countries around the world, and 20% from China. Uh, we built a, um, uh, what they call an Oxbridge, uh, college, which is in Oxford or Cambridge, where people live and eat uh, and take some classes uh, in that uh, uh, building. Uh, and uh, so we built it like a Chinese courtyard house. It's quite beautiful. And well, Two um, things on that. One is you wanted to make sure you took an active hand, that the curriculum just wasn't uh, the same old stuff out there. No. Walk us through that. No. I mean, you know, it was important that the people coming learn all things Chinese uh, and, and they also uh, get a chance to travel around the country, not, not just see the big cities, uh, you know, like uh, Beijing or Shanghai, um, that um, uh, they, they um, get a mentor uh, from Chinese society who's a super successful person, and they, they not only meet him, but, you know, he or she uh, can go out to dinner uh, or take him home and meet, meet their families. And, and so they understand China differently than just being a student. Uh, we had a program uh, where they spend a little bit of time working either at a Chinese company or, or not-for-profit or, or a ministry. Uh, so they see another part uh, of China. And, and then, of course, we, we have uh, famous people who come to China who go to this school from around the world. Uh, and then we had, uh, I thought it would be interesting to... to um, not have professors who are all foreign because you can do that at any foreign university. You can get that at Yale. You can get that at Harvard. Uh, that, that I thought if we set up a ratio of about half foreign and half Chinese professors, that the students would be able to see two different ways of uh, looking at that. Uh, and and you know, we've ended up with uh, an enormous success. Uh, I got, I got How many the, scholars a year? It's a one-year program. Right now, yes, one-year program. Right now, we have 140 on our way to uh, uh, 200. I, I got uh, was really nice. President Obama, uh, uh, who I, I ran into at some events, said, uh, hey, Steve, what are you doing these days? I said, well, I'm setting this thing up in China. He said, that's great. He said, what can I do to help you? I said, well, you, you can either give me some letter or you can do a video or something. He said, I'm glad to do that. 
And, and so we got a letter and, and, you know, I knew if we got a letter from the president of the United States that the president of China uh, would, would have to answer that on some level. Uh, and so President Xi, and right, right after his, he was elected for his uh, first term, uh, it was the first thing he did was, was write an endorsement letter for the Schwarzman Scholars Program. And no president of China had ever endorsed any kind of foreign uh, academic program. You always get the question in closing, but uh, everyone wants to know it. Sustaining growth at Blackstone, you always said, well, we've done it for 29 years. Why not 30, 33 years? Why not 34? But how do you address outside concerns? How do you preserve this unique culture? How do you keep it going? You've already tackled the succession challenge. Just quickly walk us through. How do you uh, make sure what you've spent your life creating isn't going to fall apart the way, say, a GE has well, done in recent years? Yeah, well, it's it's easy when you start something. Uh, in other words, it's not easy to start something. It's not easy to get through that growth phase. It's not easy to get to sort of middle age uh, for a business. Uh, but once you get there and, and you have um, uh, remarkable people, who join the business. That's the problem with most businesses. When you start, it's hard to recruit amazing people because they're somewhere else making a lot of money or getting satisfaction. So to drag them away for something new is is hard. Uh, but once once you get to the point where the, the business is self-sustaining, um, the, the issue is creating a really uh, unique culture and, and that appeals to people empowers them, uh, creates a lifetime learning uh, environment, um, cre- creates a apolitical, internal political environment uh, where uh, everybody, uh, if they're good enough, can get promoted. Because in my industry, which is finance, I, I've never met anybody who didn't want to be at least a lieutenant colonel. Uh, and and most of them just want to be generals, so it's hard to run an army of generals with nobody working for you. So 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 you you have to empower everyone to feel like they're going to be a general or are a lieutenant colonel from when they show up. Nobody likes to be a private. I was a private in the U.S. Army. I can tell you, nobody really likes to be one of those. Right? It's not that wonderful. Right. And, and so you, you have to have people um, feel that, that, that they are valued because they are, uh, and you have to have an open culture. You have to include them in decisions so they see how things are done. One of the points you made, and we touched on this earlier, which was very important, is that uh, you have to have a decision-making structure where you don't feel, gee, I've denied Joe five times, i got to throw him a bone, and you, right. mediocrity starts to set in. Yeah. Well, you, you do that by, by forcing everyone who's on any decision-making group uh, to, to, to have to have a point of view and express it and interrogate uh, the situation, the proposal, uh, not by saying, I think it's wonderful, uh, by saying, Where, here are the weaknesses. How do we deal with these weaknesses? Where you get in trouble with an organization is when one person just keeps making all these decisions and either the people wanting that decision to be positive play that person. Um, uh, and, and, and that person 
doesn't want to forever disappoint that group. So, so you end up being involved with emotions and personality. And I, I think that's the wrong way to do things. Uh, and it, it should be the goodness uh, of, of the idea itself that, that gets uh, assessed. You have a culture where you're supportive of your people because they didn't make a mistake. We all made a mistake. And part of the things in, in the, my book, uh, what it takes, uh, is dealing with failures. Failures are much, much more instructive than successes. You know, if you ever play sports and shoot a great jump shot, you don't even think about it. You just go up and you take it. When you go up and you take a shot and you miss it, what happens is you start thinking, what did I do wrong? Right. What, what do I correct? Why did I miss this one, but I made other ones? And that kind of learning, which you have to force on human beings, because basically they like, they like to run from their failures, whereas you, you can't do that. You, you, you have to learn, and you have to make different decision rules so you don't make the same stupid decision twice. Why would you want to? So, so we've institutionalized this way of thinking. Uh, we have very few people who ever leave, uh, and, and we do very well. And, and so I, I'm not worried about our organization. Uh, we have weekly meetings, uh, either myself or John Gray, who's our president, or Tony James, uh, who used to be president, now executive vice chairman. One of the three of us is, is always there. Uh, sometimes all three of us, we pass along culture, what we think rights and wrongs are, and uh, we, we connect the entire organization in that area by video screens around the world so that, you know, if you're in a foreign country, you have to believe the same basic things in terms of assessment of opportunities and behavior and rights and wrongs. And... You know, as long as you have that system, uh, it, it's, it's not the person. Uh, and, 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 you know, we also have a way of reviewing new opportunities so that we only introduce things as new products which we think are terrific. We don't, we don't have to introduce anything new. I mean, we're, like, very happy. So every time we do something new, we're at risk with our customers because if we do something wrong, they'll, they'll not like us anymore. And right so uh, you've so far have managed to avoid uh, the rap on committees as committees breed timidity. No, that's that's the wrong concept. Um, we only have a group of people to do something or stop something that's dangerous, right? And and we 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 have very fast meetings. I I'm somewhat intolerant of wasting time. So when we meet, we've already read this stuff. And, you know, the people who go to that meeting are smart. So you know what your issues are. Sometimes now we communicate by, uh, you know, sort of Internet. So we know what those risks are and what we start thinking. The objective, we don't have meetings that have, like, long time frames. A meeting takes as long as you need it to to get to an answer, and then everybody's busy. So... That's, we don't have analysis paralysis in that sense. So life doesn't go in a straight line, as you point out. And on health, you've had a, you, you only need five hours of sleep a night. You had two near-fatal accidents as a youngster. You've had tuberculosis, phlebitis, 
heart condition, and you look great. <laughs> well, I feel great, and you know, I I, I, I owe it all to modern technology. So, um, you know, uh, uh, my grandfather, who I never met, uh, died at I think it was forty-two from some. Uh, you know, sort of a, a blood clotting uh, issue, which I have the same condition. So all you do is you take a pill and you keep on ticking for the rest of your life, of course, but lifespan isn't affected. So, so you know, as, as, as you get older, uh, you're, you're like a car that needs a little more maintenance. Uh, but, you know, if it's basically a good car, you're, you're okay. Uh, and, and medical innovation is on your side. Uh, but but I will say because I've I've had a number of things where I I realized that, you know I I sort of wouldn't be here, uh, but for, uh, you know sort of medical intervention, that that it gives a certain immediacy, uh, to to your life because you you realize that that no one is here forever the way we're set up psychologically you think you're here forever or else you just I don't know lay down and have hot fudge Sundays all the time. Uh, and, you know, you, you don't have to live with it as, as a threat, but, but you have to realize that, that they can call this game off uh, without 48 minutes in a basketball game. You know, they can end it in the first quarter. So, so you need a certain focus and a certain, uh, you know, sort of intensity uh, to, to, to realize that because the game can be over at any time, you have to be happy with what you're doing every day. And you have to be uh, creative if, that, if that's what, what you like doing. And uh, one final thing, advice to all on first dates. You recount the first date with your current wife. You thought it went great. She thought it was horrible. Give us what you learned from that for people going out on dates. Well, <laughs> yeah, what I learned from that one is spending more time Talking and getting to know somebody uh, is is better than talking to them on the run as you're going from activity to activity, no matter how wonderful the activities are. And uh, I, I did a major correction uh, on, on the second date and went to a nice Italian restaurant for a few hours and redeemed uh, myself. So the book's called What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, well worth the resources to get it, well worth the time to read it. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks, Steve. And now, my reads of the week. One is a piece by Dan Henninger at the Wall Street Journal. You can find it on WSJ.com. It's called Trump's Fight with Globalists. But the thrust of the article is the biggest threat is not globalism for countries around the world today. It's that democracies don't seem to be working, can't get the job done. You see it in Britain, you see it here. That's why we have the rise in populism. He says the bigger threat is inside our own democratic governments. Can they perform? And so the authoritarian regimes around the world, China, Russia, and even Iran, are just waiting in the rings. Democratic governments can't deliver. They've got an authoritarian alternative. So read that piece, it's a wake-up call. Another one is called Realities of the Current Trade War. It comes from the Foundation of Economic Education. You can find it on fee.org, F-E-E.org, written by Frank Hollenbeck. It's a primer on trade, very short piece, but it makes you realize 
There are perhaps better ways to deal with China's behavior than putting sales taxes, that's another word for tariffs, tariffs on ourselves, our business and community, and on American consumers. The final read of the week is called The Limits of Clean Energy. This will get you awake, even if you don't have caffeine. Listen to this. The author says, if the world isn't careful, renewable energy could become as destructive as fossil fuels. The point is that the more and more alternative energy sources we try to get means the more and more extraction of metals and rare earth minerals. For example, a windmill, 900 tons of steel, 45,000 pounds of non-renewable plastics. So nothing is easy in this world, and this one puts it in perspective. It's written by Jason Hickel, and you can find it at foreignpolicy.com, foreignpolicy.com. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.